All right, Christy, I did have a New Year's resolution. What was it? Oh, yeah. I said I was going to preach at least one time this year. Dang. Mission accomplished. So you'll remember I did this a little over a year ago. Those of you guys have been here for a while, and uh, I guess it was okay. I just ended up reading like 15 pages of my memoirs. It was, you know, I started riffing. It was bad. But I've been watching Aaron over the past year, and uh, I, he, does, he has some postures, right, of preaching postures, and I want to incorporate into my own personal style. <laughs> my favorite one is when you're going to tell a joke, make sure you throw it, right? You've got to throw your joke. That's what, he, that's what Aaron does, and that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> All right, anyways, anyways. So... Jennifer and I went to Georgia last week. Uh, we had a nice, relaxing time. We, we kind of waited till right after Christmas, got on a plane, flew down there, hung out with my family. My folks, uh, my folks moved from Texas to Marietta, Georgia. Um, and then my brother just moved from, from Germany to Warner Robins, Georgia, which is in South Georgia. And we had a great time, very relaxing, slept in every day. It was exactly what I needed. So we're flying back uh, from, from Atlanta to L.A., and, I'm, and it's about a four-hour flight. I sit next to this lady on the flight, and uh, I like to establish rapport with people. You know, I'm going to be sitting next to her for four hours. So we get to chat, and she asks me, says, what brings you to Georgia? I said, well, my brother just moved from Germany to South Georgia, so we're visiting her. And he, uh, she, gets this, she gets this look on her face. She looks very concerned. And I kid you not, she says, Georgia is two countries now? When did that happen? As we are ascending out of the Atlanta Hartsfield Airport, I look at her and I say, Lady, Georgia the state. <laughs> but anyways, it was a good week off to relax. <laughs> Here's your sign. Now, <laughs> so we've got two little ones, and we don't get to the movies very often. Yeah, there's really just not a whole lot to take them to, and then we have to get the babysitter and the whole nine yards. It just turns out being... You know, if we're going to go on a date, we're going to go and talk to each other. We're not going to sit there and stare at the movie. But we decided when we were in Georgia, we're going to go see a movie. So I said, ladies' choice, right? So she picks this foreign film. I hadn't heard of it. But we get there, and they must have been giving away tickets or something because the line is around the block. And we, we get our tickets. We get in line. We, we finally sit down. And so it starts out, and Wolverine's singing about some boat. <laughs> Five minutes later, Catwoman joins in. Everybody is super depressed. <laughs> it goes on and on and on. Everybody's dirty. Borat shows up, and then everyone dies. <laughs> I give it four stars. Speaking of long performances. So how many of you were here uh, last week for James' sermon? Did a pretty good job. I listened to it. Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> So he did 55 verses, which, you know, I'm, I'm glad. I've only got 12 today. He covered uh, what? You know, you, God gives us, you know, what we're able to handle, right? Yeah. <laughs> which isn't exactly the verse, but we're not going to split hairs. So anyways, right, he covers, he covers what? Laban's escape, or well, Jacob's escape from Laban. Rachel steals Laban's hummels. And then I heard, like, James, like Les Miserables, made it a period piece. Right? Stand with me for the reading of God's word. 
the jokes are over now. (laughs) James 5.16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great great power in its working. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we desire to to seek you this morning, seek your face, Lord. Uh, Just just be among us. Uh, Teach us how to pray as Jacob prayed his prayer. Lord, um, we just seek your will in our lives, and we seek your will in the service. In your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Have a seat. So here we are, a year into the Genesis sermon, Genesis sermon series. I kid you not, a year. Next week will be the one-year anniversary. So before I start, I'd like to give you an in-depth recap of the last 31 chapters. Just kidding. We'll just do Jacob. All right, so here's what we know about Jacob. Jacob has been a scoundrel, scoundrel from day one. Recently, in the last 20 years or so, he's left his father's house at his mother's behest and moved in with his uncle Laban. God made a promise as he was doing this. And do you remember what that promise was? That promise was, I'm going to make you the father of many nations through whom all will be blessed. So he goes to live with Laban, marries both of his daughters, Marries both of his daughter's maids, had 12 kids with a lot of them. So with weak-eyed Leah, he had seven. With bashful Billa, he had two. With frail Zilpah, he had two. And then with the hottie, Rachel, he had one. You're, you're nodding like I didn't get them all. It's like weak-eyed, hottie, frail, grumpy, dopey, bashful doc. I think I got them all. So two wives, two maids, also wives, like Schwarzenegger without the movie deal. Well, come on. <laughs> he only had one maid. All right. That we know of. Okay. So clearly, Jacob's not honoring God with his relationships, yet God's faithful and still blesses Jacob through at least two that we know of. Uh, I mean, all children are a blessing, but in particular, Judah, we have Christ's line born from Judah. And then Joseph, who preserves Egypt, Israel in Egypt. So... He's, Jacob is continually hornswoggled by Laban, but, you know, on the bright side, uh, he also hornswoggles Laban uh, through devious animal husbandry, as we learned last week. Um, and you can say that they hated each other because they were so much alike. You know, at least that was one contributing factor. So he escapes from, from Laban, and because bad relationships always die hard, Laban mounts up the posse and goes to get Jacob. That is until God shows up and says, you know, your gun says replica and mine says Desert Eagle .50. For all you Guy Ritchie fans, sorry. I know this is going to fall flat. (laughs) Anyways, so God puts a stop to it. And this causes Jacob and Laban to make a covenant, which is where we are today. When God shows up to renew his promise to Jacob at a place that comes to be known, Menahayim, or God's camp. So Jacob finds himself at a crossroads in his life. To fully appreciate his predicament and the resulting prayer, there's some things that we need to know about Jacob. First, that is, God chose him for the promise. In Genesis 28, um, 13 through 15, you'll remember, it says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and in your offspring, all of the families of the world shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave until I have done what I promised that I will do. 
So think back a few weeks before pumpkin pie and Christmas and presents and all that stuff. This is Jacob's dream. He's dreaming of this ladder to heaven, um, angels ascending and, de- and descending, and this is where God makes this promise. It's the same promise he made to his father and grandfather. So overcome by this promise, Jacob says, God, if you do all these things, I'm going to give back a tenth of all of my increase. So, you know, uh, you can see that Jacob is grateful. But even in his gratitude, he still shows a little mistrust. He's saying, God, if you do this, I'm going to give back. Well, we know today that the tithe has been redeemed. It's a way for us to show our gratitude to God because he is so good to us. And it's a way for us to worship him. It's not a bribe to God. Um, Offering boxes are in the bag by the doors, and you can give online. Just saying. Okay, so what made Jacob so special that God made him these promises? Does God favor sneaky polygamous liars with penchant for sheepery? No, (laughs) not necessarily. He might. I think the next thing we need to know is why God made these promises. God made these promises because of God's will. Remember, Jacob was a twin. He was the second born. In that culture, the odds were stacked against him that he was going to receive any kind of inheritance at all. Well, that is unless God has a plan for you. In man's economy, Esau should have been the son of the promise. He was the firstborn. In God's economy, though the odds seem stacked against Jacob, and he's a scoundrel, God will work out his defined plan in whom he chooses. So we're a bunch of scoundrels. Do you think God has a promise and a plan for us? I think the next thing we need to know about Jacob is that God sought him in a relationship. He sought him to do him good. We know that he sought his father and his grandfather. And the Bible tells us in James 23, 2.23, excuse me, that the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. There's a crucial truth about righteous life, belief. Abraham was righteous because he believed God. But better than that, he was able to have a friend relationship with God because of his belief. When you were saved, did you say, oh, good, now I'm God's friend? Uh, probably not. That probably wasn't your first reaction. But maybe, maybe that's, uh, that's how we should think. In Genesis 28, God promises Jacob property, a legacy, and offspring. And what does he expect from Jacob in return? Nothing. I can see you doing this. It's nothing. That's absolutely right. God will be faithful to his covenant regardless of Jacob's response. God not only uh, has a promise for him, but he seeks to do him good. He doesn't need to butter up Jacob to ensure that his will is done. If he needs to motivate Jacob, he's got angels and lightning bolts and nagging wives, and plenty of them. God didn't say, if I give you all these things, then you'll come back to this land. He says, I'm going to give you all these things, and guess what? I'm going to keep you safe from yourself, safe from harm, and then I'm going to bring, back to the, bring you back to this land, and guess what? You're going to possess it. Now you tell me, does God seek us, or do we seek him? I think John 15, 16 makes that pretty clear. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that in that fruit you should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. When was a time in your life when you had no other option but to trust God? For me, that was about 10 years ago in, uh, in 2003, right about this time. Um, as you know, I'm in the Air Force. Uh, I was a student out here when I was a lieutenant. 
Um, and when I graduated, my orders were for Colorado Springs. Uh, so that meant I had a, a long drive to do. So I mounted up my Jeep, and, uh, and I headed north out of uh, Santa Maria through Arizona into Utah and into Colorado. So as I was departing what I now know was the last sign of civilization in Arizona, I spied a sign that said, 100 miles, next gas. I had about three-quarters of a tank in my Jeep, and being the intrepid young man that I am, I said, no problem. So 100 miles later, I discovered that uh, the state of Arizona and ConocoPhillips don't uh, coordinate with one another when they either put up road signs or close gas stations. Under, uh, with a little under half a tank, I had a decision to make. Turn away, or turn back, or go on. So, of course, I smartly pressed on. <laughs> so at this point, I'd like to thank Verizon Wireless for their exceptional coverage in the western Rocky Mountains. <laughs> As I entered the foothills of North America's largest and most majestic mountain range, I was comforted by the thought that I hadn't seen another car in the last five minutes. In a well-orchestrated ballet, <laughs> the following sequence of events entered the phase of my journey I will call sure panic time. <laughs> Cue, total darkness. No cars. A snowflake. <laughs> Another snowflake. The rest of the snowflakes. <laughs> Ding! Fuel light. Sheer panic time. <laughs> If you've not experienced this particular situation, I pray that someday you do, because it will result in the most honest and desperate prayers of your entire life. <laughs> I was worried, and it was at this point I said, God, if I run out of gas out here, who will I eat to survive? <laughs> but my prayer really went something like this. God, now I've done it, and that, was, that wasn't exactly the word I used. Only you can save me now. Please, God, just get me to this gas station, and I will stop, and I will never do this again. The words hadn't lift, left my lips when I saw the sign, 25 miles, Richfield, Utah. I was like, thank you, Lord. So with razor-thin faith, coasting down hills, keeping in a high gear, I just barely squeaked in to a gas station with lights off. It filled up and said, going straight to the hotel, and that's what I did. God really saved me that night. I, was, I certainly wasn't a righteous man when I prayed that prayer, but I can tell you that like, jo like Jacob, I trusted God mostly because I had no other choice, and I was completely out of options and out of control. Follow along with me in chapter 32 of Genesis. So Jacob was told by God himself that he was to be a minister of God's great plan, and yet he set up his life around his own schemes, his own desires, and his, and his own will to control his own destiny. So we find him at the apex of his sojournings, and he finds himself right back where he began. Verse 1 says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Manahayim. So again, for the second time, God has sent angels to meet Jacob as he trans transitions back to the land that belonged to his fathers. God clearly has ordained this path. I mean, remember back at, in Bethel when God said, I'm going to give you this place. Angels are a pretty clear sign that God is going to do what he's going to say he's going to do. Menahayim, I like that word. This is God's camp. Don't miss this. For the second time, God has revealed himself to Jacob. 
with angels, no less. So not only does he have a plan for Jacob, but it looks like he wants to be part of his life. He wants to have a relationship. Verse 3 goes on to say, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sire, to the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. All right, come on, man. Angels just appeared to you. But his thoughts turn from God's promise in this bright future and away from obeying God. Instead, they turn to buying off his brother Esau for his past transgressions. How many times do, we, do you and I do this? We let our past sins disqualify us from obeying God. Don't get me wrong. Jacob did need to ask Esau for forgiveness. But buying him off is a bribe, and, and, and forgiveness is not purchased with bribes. God told Jacob, this is your land. You will possess it. He didn't say, if you're not a scoundrel, you'll possess it. The only thing that qualifies Jacob to take possession of this land is that he is the object of God's plan and will for a future plan of redemption. Jacob was to be a minister of God's great promise. So don't act like we don't do this. Christ has a plan for us, and we constantly tell him, Jesus, I am not qualified to do the work that you have given me. We tell Jesus all the time, because things we have done, we can't do his work. I was a liar. I stole. I slept around. I'm an addict. You can't use me, Jesus. You've got to repent of that stuff. Because guess what? Jesus knows it all anyway, and he's calling you to a ministry anyway. Jesus gives us a mandate to make disciples of the nations, baptize them in his name, and teach them to obey all his commands. If you follow this great commission, do you know what that makes you? Like Jacob, it makes you a minister. In verse 6, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided his people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp will be left to escape. Uh Uh-oh, the chickens have come to roost. So this unresolved sin in Jacob's life seems to have come back to bite him. But maybe that was just the motivation he needed, because he seems to have had a moment of clarity. It's at this point where he says, wait, this is Menahayim. This is God's camp. God has made promises to me, and he has established a relationship with me. He had a relationship with Dad. He had a relationship with Grandpa. He's seeking me, too. This revelation is key because it puts Jacob in the right frame of mind to pray like a righteous man. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. So for the first time since God spoke to him to Jacob at Bethel, he will, Jacob will both acknowledge God's loving kindness and seeks the promises that God has made to him. Just like me in Utah, when the chips are down and I had no other choice, Jacob seeks the Lord. He calls on God's great power. He remembers that God has made him a promise, and that promise is tied to something. Do you know what that thing is? That promise is tied to God's will. He prayed for God's will. When Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, he taught us to pray like this. He says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our Savior immediately focuses his disciples on the object of our prayers, God's great and glorious nature. Lord, 
hallowed be thy name. When we pray, don't try and flatter God, but consider his awesomeness and tell him about it. Think about what makes him so great. What has he done personally for you? What has he done for this world, your family? Think about a person you respect and would really like to be friends with. How would you talk to them? Then Jesus removes the the individual's desires completely from the focus of the prayer. Consider that the whole world exists for God's great and good pleasure. In this world, God is always first. He's always greatest and always best. If you think anything is more important than God's desires, then maybe we need to reconsider this Christian thing. I'm not trying to be condescending, but think about this. Only God has a perfect will and plan. And trust me, you want his plan to be done because you're snakes. But Jacob continues his prayer. I'm not worthy of the least of all deeds and steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For only with my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Well, duh. None of us are worthy of God's good kindness. God has been steadfast and faithful while Jacob has been impatient and hasty, and I think he realizes it now. But that's why grace is a divine attribute. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So this is Jacob's righteous prayer for supplication and deliverance, his most basic needs. It's righteous because he's praying for the object of God's will, the innocent ones who are going to be the instruments for for God's plan of salvation. Like Christ showed us, give us this day our daily bread. Give me what I need to accomplish your will today, Lord. For God, God's will for Jacob was for him to possess that land in which he stood, be the father of many nations, and then more importantly, bless the entire earth. So finally, the stubborn man has had a breakthrough. God said he, if God said that he's going to do something for you, you can trust that he's going to do something for you. He is trustworthy, and as we seek him, let's meditate on that in our prayers. And I really challenge you to do that. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says, Trust in the Lord with your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. And always acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You know, worry often stems from when we don't believe that God is trustworthy. We know he's proven himself time and time again. We know he's trustworthy. When we doubt God, we pitch our own tent, make our own camp, and in that camp, trouble awaits. Where's Manahayim in your life? Where is God's camp? Where's the place where we will just put our desires aside and say, you know what, I'm going to trust in God's plan? When will I stop saying, God, just one more promotion, and then I'm all yours? When will you stop saying, I'm busy now, but when the schedule clears up, God, it belongs to you? Nope. In God's camp, God is in charge. And when God is in charge, the work gets done. Who named Manahayim? Jacob. Do you know what that means? He could have named any place God's camp. But he had to wait. Why did he wait so long? Do you want that next promotion? That's not a bad thing. I mean, promotions are good things. It's a reward for work. Let God worry about it. Serve God and let God worry about it. God's not sending you to Tasmania tomorrow to baptize aborigines who live in lean-to huts. 
He's sending you to work, to school, to mobs. He's sending you to Little League. Plant your flag in those places and say, this is God's camp. When Jesus said, go make disciples of the world, baptizing in my name, he didn't mean we all had to go to Africa. I mean, Africa's probably covered by now. Who's covering your office? Who's covering your English lit class? Who's making a disciple of your dentist, for instance? Whose camp is Santa Maria, California? Whose camp is Santa Maria, California? This is God's camp. Look, I know what you're saying. How can I pray like a righteous man? I mean, I want to. I want to pray like a righteous man. But then Romans 3.10 says none are righteous, not one. So how can the unrighteous pray as Jacob prayed? Unto ourselves, we're just like him. We're self-centered. We're constantly pressing our advantage. We're consumed by the flesh. We see the light. say, hey, the light is good. And then we run towards darkness. I know I'm saved by God's grace, and I hope you are too. But I just keep seeming to miss righteousness. Could it be that righteousness doesn't begin or end with me? Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.16. What makes one sinful man righteous and one sinful man unrighteous? I mean, for crying out loud, Peter called Lot of Sodom and Gomorrah, I slept with my daughter's fame, a righteous man. And I said daughters, plural. Does our salvation make us righteous? Well, I mean, it makes us saved. James said a saved man without works is dead in his faith. But he also said that Abraham's works were an expression of his faith. And they completed his faith because it expressed that he believed in God. It was that belief that, uh, that was counted to him as righteousness. But if you boast in your works, well, then you're useless as well because it's pride. So I was talking to James Fairfield this week, and, and we were talking about that. And, and he said, you know, a person who boasts in their works is a lot like an angel. Satan. So perhaps what makes us righteous is what we do with God's promises and commands. Second Corinthians 5.16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against us, against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is pretty sweet. We have done nothing to become righteous. Christ reconciled us to his Father through the work on the cross. You can't get righteouser than Christ has already made you. With that in mind, Christ has made promises and commands to each one of us. What are you doing with this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? How are you loving your brother as yourself? Jesus said that on those two commands hang the whole law and the prophets. Everything God requires of you. When you accepted Christ, Jesus promised you the Holy Spirit and his power to do his work. Jesus then gave you a purpose for your life. And you should feel honored because it's the same purpose for his kingly life. 
and that was reconciliation. Matthew 28 says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I'm going to ask you a few questions, and these were personally convicting, convicting to me. I mean, our lives are to be about reconciliation. And that means, as Christians, we need to be imparting our faith to other Christians, bringing folks into the fold who, who don't know Christ, living, living in a way where our life expresses our Savior, and then discipling folks, recreating our faith in others, bringing folks along. So I asked myself, when's the last time I discipled somebody? Was it this year? Was it this decade? Have I ever really done it? We are just like Jacob, waiting on God to do the work while we look out for our own interest. Who am I to do God's work? What can I do? Sure, I'm saved, but my sin is so black that people will judge me, and I'm not worthy of the promises that God has made to me. Look. You are exactly the minister that God has made for your ministry. What type of ministry are you engaged in? A fruitful ministry or a fearful ministry? Turn to 1 Corinthians one twenty-six. It can be said that there is no one who has ever walked on this earth except for Christ who is worthy to be a minister of God. But we know that when we're saved, he not only imparts his righteousness to us, but he charges us with the ministry, and we are worthy of that ministry because of who he is. 1 Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring, to bring things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, Righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers, if Jesus has saved your soul, take those verses as powerful encouragement that God has a ministry plan for each one of you. If you you don't know Jesus as your Savior, take heart. God has a plan for you as well. He wants to reconcile you into his holy family and use your life to accomplish his plan. This was the story of Jacob's life. Remember what Jacob said. I'm not worthy of the least of all deeds of steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. The band's going to come up. None are righteous, not one. But believe in him and his righteousness will be added to you. This is why we come to communion each week, because Christ Christ imparted his righteousness to us with his death, burial, and resurrection. We also believe that offerings are part of our worship to give back to God some of what he has given to us. I want you to make a resolution this year. I want you to pray like a righteous man. I want you to plant your flag in your prayer life and say, this is God's camp. I want you to disciple your family under prayer. I want you to consider God at the center of your prayers. Disciple your children. Disciple your wives. Wives, disciple your husbands. Work together as a GC. Teach yourself to pray as Jesus showed you.
When we pray the way our Savior showed us, we get to pray as holy participants in God's righteous plan. So maybe this is foreign to you because you don't know Jesus as your Savior. Romans 10.10 says, If you believe with your heart, you are justified. And if you profess with your mouth, you are saved. Today you can be sure of your salvation. If you have concerns, if you have prayers, I'm going to be in the back with my fellow deacons and elders, and we'd love to pray with you. Take this opportunity. And this year, let's, let's pray as righteous participants in God's plan. Please pray with me. Father God, we just love you and we honor you for this time where we could come to worship. Father, uh, we desire more than anything to just have a fruitful prayer life, Lord. One where uh, you minister to us and we can, we can be used for your fruitful ministry here on earth. Father God, uh, I don't just want to be a man who, who, who cries out when things are bad, but seeks you on a daily basis to get fed with that daily bread to, to accomplish your work, Lord. We love you, Lord Jesus. We just give you honor and glory in your holy name, Father. Amen. Amen.